0: Now you might be thinking, it's 4th of July weekend. A few hundred of our people are gone. Mark's going to take it easy on us. No such luck. (laughs) Last week, um, I posed a pretty hard question. I said, when did Jesus become real to you? And, And I qualified it by saying I wasn't talking about when did you become a believer in Jesus? But rather, when did you understand the intimacy of that relationship? When did Jesus become real to you? And you may may not have been able to point to a specific point in your life, but rather it's been a gradual thing over a long period of time. Hinging on that question, and I'll, I'll come back to that a little bit later, is this question I want you to consider this week. The concept of approaching God or coming to God is blank. How, how would you fill that in? Let me give you a few, uh, that's okay. That's okay, Sherry, you can say humbling. <laughs> that was one of the ones I was gonna throw out. <laughs> a, a few single words fill in the blanks for you. The concept of coming to God is scary. Comforting. Intimidating. Humbling. What word would you personally insert in there? Everybody has an emotion related to the thought of coming to God. Some would say it's uplifting. Some would say it's, it's incredibly threatening. Here's one you may not have thought of. The concept of approaching God is revolutionary. You're going to see that come out this morning, especially for these individuals who are receiving this letter. I'm going to ask you to take that question in your mind, just kind of set it on the shelf for just a second. It's going to stay on the screen for a moment, but just let it be a placeholder. We're going to do a little pop quiz. don't you love pop quizzes. I loved going into class where I knew the material and they would have a pop quiz. Hated going into class where I didn't know the material and they would have a pop quiz. But you'll know the material on this one. Pop quiz based on a couple things in the Old Testament. If you know the answer, just kind of shout it out there. In, In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell, did God put them out of the garden? Yes or no? Yes, all right, good, got one right. Top quiz, you're moving well. In the garden, when God put them out of the garden, did God place an angel to guard the entrance back into the garden and a flaming sword? Yes, okay. So we see something happening as a result of the fall of man, separation from man and God beginning. The ability to approach God changed. We're told in Genesis that man was able to come into God's presence in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. They walked with God and talked with God. But after the fall of man, the approach of God changed. So let's fast forward. Time of Moses. Moses is on Mount Sinai. Another pop quiz question. Did did God say to Moses, tell the people not to approach me on the mountain? Yes. Separation even further. And then God said, build me a holy place, a place for people to come and worship me, a tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle, as you've learned in the last number of weeks, there was to be a holy of holies. Did God say, don't let man approach me in the holy of holies? Yeah. Only one man, only the high priest got to come in there. Everybody else, it's off limits. So you can understand, if you were living in the time of the Old Testament, No one in their right mind would be bold enough to enter into the Holy of Holies. And for millennia, the concept of approaching God is incredibly threatening. That someone could have a personal relationship with God the way that Adam did before the fall? Unheard of. No one would dare approach God. But as you're going to see in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning, because of Jesus Christ, everything changed. Everything turned 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10 and and verse 19. We left off in verse 18 last week. Verse 19 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So Adam fell, angels were placed at the entrance of the garden, a flaming sword was there, a sword that God personally placed in front of the garden. And we're told in Hebrews, Jesus' blood has now doused the flaming sword. The flaming sword has been removed. The way to God has been opened again. You can come now to God's presence with confidence according to verse 19. To a first century Jew, the prospect of that is awesome. It's revolutionary. It's a brand new way of thinking that you can come to God simply approaching Him I want you to know here in 2014, many people still think the way the first century Jews thought. Approaching God is frightening. It's threatening. It's intimidating. We're told the only basis by which we get to draw near to God is found in verse 19 and verse 20. What you just celebrated in communion this morning. Look with me on the screen at the two things, the blood of Jesus, verse 19, and the flesh of Jesus, verse 20. Those are the only things that allow you to approach God. So what you're going to see coming out of these next few verses is the author gives us a threefold invitation. Let us, let us, let us. He says it three times. And the, and the fact that we can do this let us thing means that we've got this boldness to come before God. So we see in verse 20, just before we move on, there's this way into God's presence. And we're told, according to the passage, verse 20, it's a new and living way. You know that scripture is full of confusing statements that that seem to not make a lot of sense, almost like a paradox in some cases. Well, this new and living way is one of those things that's kind of like a, a paradoxical statement. Here's why. The word new in scripture, you're gonna see this on the screen, is the Greek word prosphatos. And prosphatos means a recent kill, a fresh slaughter. It's the only time it's used in the entire Bible. And it's used here at Hebrews chapter 10. Prosphatos is used of the death of Jesus Christ. And so we're told because of this new, this prosphatos, this new slaughter, he has become the living way. Does that not seem odd to you? It's like a paradox that a fresh slaughter would become a new living thing. That's why the Bible sometimes is confusing to people, especially when you're talking to people who are non-believers. If you used phrases like this, Jesus' death conquered death, they'd look at you like, are you drunk or high? high what? Jesus' death conquered death. How do you explain that? Well, in the same way, this statement is made that Jesus' kill, the kill, the slaughter of Jesus made this living way. It's a brilliant statement, the way that he's constructed it, to remind us of the blood and the flesh of Jesus, literally reminding the recipients of communion. So anybody, this is what it's telling us, anybody attempting to get into God's presence based on their character, based on their works of righteousness, based on the fact that I'm a really good guy, that gives you no access to God. He's literally saying it's only through the blood, it's only through the flesh, this new and living way that you get in to see God. Now verse 22, it says, let us draw near, and I love this phrase. It, you aren't gonna see the word on the screen, it's in your notes this morning if you happen to pick those up, but this this word, proserkomai, makes me think of my grandpa, and, and that's why I like the word. It takes me back to a time as a child when I had this relationship with my grandfather that was so intimate, this word, proserkomai, takes me right back there. Because let us draw near is a compound word, It, it pros meaning forward, erkomai meaning draw near. Now, I don't know what your relationship was like with your grandparents, but mine with my grandfather it was very, very special. And my grandpa had great ways of spoiling me and and my siblings. First of all, my grandpa had a refrigerator in his garage that was just grandpa's refrigerator. And it was set aside for the grandchildren. And in grandpa's refrigerator, he stocked it with all kinds of good things. Things my mom didn't want us to drink and eat, but things that my grandpa said were okay. And if it was grandpa sanctioned, you didn't argue with it, okay? So grandpa would put pop in there and he'd put candy bars in there and he'd put fruit in there just to appease my mother. But mostly it was the pop and candy bars. Now they happened to live in the same quadrant that we had, had this piece of property in Whitehall called Kring Corners, literally. It was just inhabited by all the Krings. And my grandpa just lived down the street. And so I could literally go into his home after school each day. And I knew invariably if my grandfather was not out splitting wood or working in his garden, that he would be sitting in his wooden chair in his kitchen. And if I came through the door, and I stopped at his refrigerator, by the way, in the garage on the way in, if I went through the door of the kitchen, my grandpa would be sitting in his chair, and if I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years of age. Grandpa would proserkomai, say, come here, Mark. And he'd put me on his lap, and we'd just talk about my day. This concept of proserkomai, to draw near, is God saying, come here, come close. But there's a condition on it. It says, draw near with a true heart. Well, what is a true heart? It says it right there in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart. Well, what does that look like? Well, first of all, it's the word sincere, alethanos, and it literally means without hypocrisy, meaning without any ulterior motive. Does God know when we come to him with ulterior motives? He knows everything. So he knows when we're being fake, doesn't he? He knows when we participate in something like communion and we just do it out of habit versus out of reconstructing in our mind what did it really cost Jesus to go to the cross. He, he knows when it's false and when it's counterfeit. So God knows when we come with pure motives. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said what he did in Matthew 5, 8. Jesus literally said, it's those who come with a pure heart who see God. Is it possible to come to God with an insincere heart? I know I've done it. I bet you've done it. Don't look at me so pompous, I bet you have. (laughs) We all do it. Matter of fact, David identified himself, King David in the Old Testament, and said, God will you examine my heart and see if there's any impure thing in me? Because as humans, We're so capable of coming to God with an insincere heart. Here's a couple of examples, Jeremiah 3.10. God said the whole nation of Judah did it to him. Judah, Jeremiah 3.10, Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception. They tried to deceive God, make him think they were coming back to him when they really weren't. Well, that's that's a whole nation. What about in the New Testament, an individual? Simon, Simon the magician whom Peter had to chastise because he was trying to make money off from Jesus' name. Peter's talking to him in Acts 21, 8, 21. Your heart, Simon, is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven. He was using the name of Jesus for profit. But Jesus knew, literally Peter knew, in this case, that he was doing it out of an insincere heart. God has always required that when we approach him, we approach him with a sincere heart. Deuteronomy 4.29, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart. Here's my experience. All these years of walking with Christ, I've come to this conclusion. At the times when I sense that I'm coming before God with an impure heart or with not pure motives, this is what I do. I wait, I wait, how long? I wait and I wait and I wait until I know that what I'm approaching God about, I'm approaching him with God's convictions with a pure heart. So that requires me to come before the Father and say, on this issue will you give me your convictions? Because I think mine are insincere. I think I might have ulterior motives here. However you might have to say it to the Father, you have to come before Him with a pure heart because we're told according to Scripture the people who find God are those who seek Him with all their heart, meaning a sincere heart. Now there's a little bit of a hard shift that takes place when we move into this next verse. It goes like this, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. I put in the word expectation there in parentheses. Without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Have you ever met a hopeless believer? It's kind of a contrast in terms, right? How can you be a believer without hope? Well, It's possible. Individuals lose their hope. And so why does this one, this writer, tell them to hold fast, lock on? Well, because some of them are wavering. So He's not exhorting them to hold on to their salvation. He's exhorting them to hold on to the confession of their hope. Why? Because someone who's lets go has lost hope and he's afraid that they're gonna let go. So someone who holds on to the true confession, that's the continuing evidence that it's genuine. There's a pastor in California who led a man to Christ recently, and he shares the story that the individual in his church who heard the gospel presentation came up after the service and said to the pastor, I want that, I I wanna give my life to Jesus. And so the pastor prayed with him, He, he confessed Jesus as his savior, And he said, I want to be baptized. Well, it just happened to be the next weekend there was a baptism service. So the pastor said, why don't you come before the church, share your story, and I'll I'll baptize you. So the man did. He came before the church and he said, here's who I was. This is what I understand the gospel to be. And I'm being baptized this morning because I believe this and I, I know it to be true. One month later, the man opened a strip club in Los Angeles. Is he holding true to the confession of his faith? See, his lips said one thing, but his actions said another thing. He didn't hold fast to the confession of his faith. He stood before the church and said one thing, but his actions revealed something else. There's a contradiction in his confession. So the Reformers, in the Reformation period of time of the church, the Reformers called this the perseverance of the saints, in which the saints endure, even when times or business decisions or personal decisions tell you to do something else, the persevering saint endures according to the Word of God. And this isn't something that we're doing to keep ourselves saved, it's the evidence that we are saved. It's it's the proof in the pudding. John Kelvin, who is a theologian that lived hundreds and hundreds of years before, had this way of saying it. it. very famous statement he said god's sovereignty does not exclude man's responsibility here's the way that jesus said it back in the book of john let me take you first to john 6 44. jesus said no one can come to me unless the father who sent me sent me draws him meaning you can come to god you can approach the father but it's incumbent upon God to take action as well. We both play a role in this. Here's another way that he said it, John 8:31. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You can be a disciple, but you've got to abide, but you can't abide unless you're a disciple. It's part of the paradox that confuses people. This is God saying, you've got a role and I've got a role. And he goes on to close in verse 23 by saying, the reason that you can hold fast The reason that you can endure without wavering in verse 23 is because the one who promised to you your salvation is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. Now, understand where he leaves this now and takes us to the next level is he's saying don't stop. Don't stop with holding fast. That's the minimum. That's the basics. Don't be content to stay there. Take it to the next level. Use your persevering to encourage your brother and sister in Christ. Let's go to the next verse, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Stir up one another, it's kind of a a fun phrase. I wanna explain this before we move on to verse 26. The word stir up, It has to do with irritating somebody, okay? So when he's saying stir up one another, it's like making someone exasperated. Have you ever irritated someone to the point of love? Now look at the association. This is why I said there's some of these paradoxical statements. How do you irritate someone to love? Look closely at the phrase. Let us consider how to stir up or exasperate one another to love. The kind of love that's being spoken of here is agape love. And agape love can only be done in community. I can't do agape love on my own. I have to have community. You have to have community. We need each other. So agape love is totally dependent upon communal activity. It requires others to use it. So here's what he's telling them. One of the best ways to hold fast without wavering to the things of God is to put yourself in a place where you can love and be loved, where you can serve and be served. In other words, put yourself in someone's path. Get in their way and ask them, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? How can I serve you? And allow them to serve you back. Not to the point where you're obnoxious with that person, but in a very healthy way, looking for ways to love and community. That keeps us from wavering. So his point is, there's no better place than in the life of a healthy church. Don't give up on that, as is the habit of some. That's why he says it that way. Because your faithfulness in being active in the life of the church is an encouragement to others, or it provokes others to their activity to love other people as well. Now we make a really, really hard shift. And I told you in the very beginning, I wasn't gonna let up on the hard stuff. This is where it gets really hard, This is scary stuff that's coming up next. And anybody who's familiar with the book of Hebrews and has looked at chapter 10, has looked at this passage and says, wow, that is some weighty stuff. Let's go into it, verse 26. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Uh, notice right away, he uses the word we. He makes himself really relatable. He doesn't say if you go on sinning, he's putting himself in the same category. Now, understand of the five warnings in the book of Hebrews, this is the most severe. As a matter of fact, most theologians believe that the warning that is here is the most serious in all of Scripture. I told you when we started the book of Hebrews that there's three categories of people who are receiving this letter. There's clearly the non-believers who are in the church, who have heard about the things of God and they've just said, nah, not interested. And then there's the believers who clearly have received this letter. They, they, They are those who have this attitude that they belong to Christ. But then there's this third category and that's who I want to explain now. And the third category are the posers. Individuals who come into the church who act as though they believe, they acknowledge the gospel, they may even make a commitment, even if it's superficial, and they identify themselves with the church, but over time the enthusiasm cools and they find themselves walking away because the cost of being a Christian is too high. So you can understand based on the history of why I've told you this letter is being written, these individuals are thinking of running back to Judaism because Rome is killing the Christians, And they're thinking, I'm going to leave because Judaism is safe. That's one of the reasons he's including them in this group. What you have before you in verse 26 is possibly the clearest definition in the entire Bible of the word apostasy. And it literally says, they receive the knowledge of the truth, but they deliberately remain in sin. Here's what an apostate is. They see the truth, they know the truth, they hear the truth, but eventually they willfully reject it. So apostasy has two major characteristics to it according to what we see in the Bible. They have a knowledge of the truth and they willfully reject it. There's one verse in 1 John that helps us understand the view that the disciples had. John, when he was pastoring a church in the first century, saw individuals who fell into apostasy. This verse helps us understand what it really is. 1 John 2.19. He says, They went out from us but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. Apostasy is on the increase in the church in 2014, and it should be expected that it would increase. I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. John MacArthur had an interesting observation about this. Let me show you his quote. He says, apostates are not made in the absence, but in the presence of Christ. They are bred almost without exception within the church, in the very midst of God's people. And this is the thing that every parent walks in fear of. Whether you're a child here today with your parent, or you're a parent raising a child, or a grandparent whose kids, or you an uncle or an aunt whose, whose nieces and nephews are in the church, every family member walks in fear of that knowledge that people can be raised in the church and know the truth and have the knowledge of the truth but willingly walk away apostasy understand is not new it's very old it it predates the church goes back to the time of the children of israel it's the most serious sin of all and it is not a sin of ignorance it's a sin of rejecting the truth so i'm going to use judas as an example judas had more information available to him than anybody else at that period of time other than the other 11 disciples. Judas is the classic apostate. There's no wonder why Jesus called him the son of perdition. He had all the information available to him. He walked with Jesus, he talked with Jesus, he personally sat down and had meals with Jesus. He's the consummate flaw in the excuse, I'd believe in Jesus if I just had a little more information. Well, Judas had all the information. He had all the evidence, yet he turned his back, and he became apostate, willingly walking away. There are individuals in the church today who move towards Jesus right up to the edge of belief, but in the end walk away and say, "Nah, the cost is too much, or the past begins calling to them, saying, hey, come on over here. What we're doing is so much more fun. You gave up way too much to do that. And begin hearing the voices of the past days and ultimately they've had enough of God and walk away. Here's why I say apostasy is increasing because scripture says apostasy is a trademark of the last days. Look with me on the screen. First Timothy 4.1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And what's the result? In verse 26, we're told, for that person, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So there's two results of apostasy. Number one, the apostate has no sacrifice. And that is scary stuff. There's nothing to compensate for his sins. In other words, he's beyond salvation because he's rejected what he knows to be true. Jesus offered his flesh and his blood and they're walking away, leaving no sacrifice whatsoever for their sin. So all hope of salvation is forfeited. Number two, the apostate has great judgment and this one's even scarier than the first one. The principle is this, the greater the sin, the greater the judgment. Since apostasy is the worst sin, it has the worst judgment. Matter of fact, if you look at verse 27, it says that God sees the person who goes apostate as being an actual enemy of his. He calls them an adversary. And this conveys the idea of something that's incredibly frightening. He he says in verse 27, they shouldn't expect a fearful expectation of judgment. And so he uses this really vivid language about the raging fire and the devouring flames because these people have turned into adversaries of God. They become like Judas. Do you notice that they can't be regarded as a neutral position? There is no neutral position with God. You're either for me or against me, Jesus said. And those who have the light have a greater, greater degree of responsibility. So let's go into verse 28 with fear and trembling because it talks about the repercussions of someone who has the light and willingly walks away. And in my notes, I've entitled this, the subdivisions of hell, because there are categories to hell. Let's go forward with this with verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. He's using an argument from the greater to the lesser to show the seriousness of this. So let me explain this. In the law of Moses, we know that the 10 commandments, the law of Moses was given by God, right? God gave Moses that law. Moses didn't make up the law. God gave it to him on Mount Sinai. And and the law, because it's very specifically from God, we understand that the person who rejects the law of God is in essence rejecting who? God. So if you reject the law of God, you're rejecting God. Well, the Old Testament was very, very clear. When that happened, there was no exception allowed. That person had to be executed. If they were going to reject God and walk away, they were to be killed if they lived under the Old Testament system. His, his argument is this, in such serious matters, the charge had to be proved by more than one person. It had to be proved by two or three witnesses, because it was going to cost that person his life. So to disrespect the law was extremely serious, but this issue far surpasses that, because Jesus is better than Moses, right? Jesus is greater than Moses, So his his question for us is, in verse 29, how much worse punishment? See, there's degrees of punishment for individuals who willingly walk away. There's degrees of sin. There's degrees of judgment. Let me take you to an example. Jesus is talking with Pilate. He's already been arrested in the garden. The guards have brought him into the palace, and he's standing with Pilate, and there's a small conversation going on. Pilate's trying to justify the actions that have taken place. Jesus has a response to him that comes out of John 19, 11. And it says this, Jesus speaking, He who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Do you know who he's speaking of? Judas. Judas delivered Jesus over to the guards. He has a greater degree of responsibility. See, both men, Pilate and Judas, are unbelievers. They have both rejected Jesus. But Judas is apostate because he has greater information. He had light way beyond what Pilate had, therefore a greater degree of guilt in rejecting Jesus. Jesus says he's got greater guilt than you. See, the judgment is in proportion to the sin. God is not more tolerant today than what he was in the Old Testament. I wanna be really clear about this part because I confused people in the Saturday night service when I made that statement. When Jesus says Judas has a greater degree of sin on him, a greater degree of guilt, it's because he had more information. In society today, people look at the God of the Old Testament and they say, Wow, he was like really harsh. I mean, look at the penalties. Look at the punishment for the people in the Old Testament. And they would say, well, God of the New Testament is so much more loving. He's so much more tolerant today. Would you agree with that statement? I, I don't think you would. Here's why. Because we have immeasurably more light available to us today, the worst sins of the Old Testament don't begin to compare with the person who has known of Jesus and yet willingly rejects him. I'm going to give you an example from Scripture to back that up. What we're talking about is the person who willingly rejects Jesus today is going to find themselves in the Judas subdivision of hell. Let me back that up. I know that's a really strong statement. Jesus lived in the city of Capernaum. After he was raised in the city of Galilee, he moved to the seaside shore, Peter's hometown, the city of Capernaum. And in Capernaum, he did many great miracles. And he taught publicly so that people would understand who he was. At the very, very end, near the arrest of Jesus, Jesus had something very specific to say to the city of Capernaum and the inhabitants. Look with me on the screen at Matthew eleven twenty-three. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That should scare the bejeebers out of us. Jesus is saying, Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah, that was destroyed in the Old Testament, but they're going to be better off than anybody who has the information of who I am and willingly rejects me. That's why this really terrifying verse comes out of verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See he's already made the case that Jesus is better. 10 chapters now. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. We're seeing it over and over and over again. And we've already learned that God is long suffering and he's patient and he's merciful and he's kind. But for the one who turns his back on God, there's nothing left God for God to do for that one. And we're coming into the home stretch here the last few verses and what we gain just before the ending is some insight into who these people are that he's been writing this book to for 10 chapters now. We find out that they're friends of his. Go with me to these last few verses. Verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is a group of people who have given up many things. Their reputation, their friends, they've given up their possessions. And this writer obviously knows these people whom he's writing to. This is a real relationship. These are people with whom he has intimacy. And he's aware they've endured much and yet it hasn't driven them away. They found out what the cost of being a Christian is. They're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It hasn't yet scared them away. It's cost them something. So he says, remember, reconstruct in your mind. Recall the former days, the things that you have already endured. And in verse 32, he uses the word hard struggle. It's it's the word athleticism where we get the words athletics from. In in other words, the Christians in the first century were looked at as spiritual athletes, even if people didn't like them. They looked at them as people who would endure through really, really hard times. And and they gave up so much that it actually caused them to be recognized as athletes, athleticists. So he says, you've gone through this hard hard struggle, and this hard struggle has been triggered by something. It's been triggered by your suffering. So he uses the word publicly exposed. It's, it's the word theatricus. It may sound familiar to you, theater. He's telling them, I know you've been put on stage. I know you've been publicly humiliated. You've been insulted in front of crowds. I know what you've gone through. I know what you've endured to the point of being public focus of insult. And then he steps it one more further. He says, you've, some of you have spent time in prison and you've been with the prisoners. I don't know if you've studied first-century prisons, but it's not like the prisons of 2014, just let me tell you. There's no yard time. There's no relationship with friends and family other than they were bringing food and clothing trying to help them to sustain their life because the Roman system was not going to give them food. It wasn't meant to be a holding pen. Prisoners were not meant to be pampered. They were meant to be punished. An association with them meant risk to your own life. As a matter of fact, it identified you as an enemy of the state. So these people have really understood what it means to give up much for the cause of Christ. And he goes one step further. He says in verse 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. In the Greek language, that literally means a state-sanctioned action in which mobs came in and took over their property, took over their businesses, and took over their possessions. And he says, you joyfully endured that. It's one thing to endure those losses. It's another thing entirely to do it joyfully. These people are so focused on heaven's rewards, they were able to take the loss. They knew that their possession in Christ is not subject to attacks. So they were willing to abide So that's why he makes this argument. Verse 35, therefore, don't throw away your confidence, your hope. Verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. I can't get into it this morning, but I don't know if you're aware that there's a lot of rewards associated with being a Christian, beyond your reward of eternal life. There's things that God wants to give you and do for you, rewards, but we won't get into that now. So he reminds them of the rewards, things that they've been promised, and go with me to verse 37. This is where it ends. For yet, a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. He's quoting the Old Testament there. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, last verse. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. See, He believes the best of these people. The the warning is really strong. The result of shrinking back, total loss. But the encouragement is, you're far from being lost. You're going to be the ones who go on. So he draws their attention to the second coming of Jesus. This one whom we come to. So we learned in verse 19, we have confidence to approach the throne. We can approach the Father. And now he reminds us the one that we're approaching in verse 37 is going to be approaching us one day. Verse 37, the coming one will come. So you can endure a great deal when you have hope, can't you? And he's reminding them of their hope. Not hoping in hope, but hoping in a sure expectation, a certain promise When your hope is gone, your strength is gone. So here's the confidence that we have. The the one with whom we go to, with whom we have this relationship, who has become real to us, this one is going to be coming to us. So this takes me all the way back to last week. When I asked that question, when did Jesus become real to you? And I've just been pondering again this week, wrestling through it. How is it that so many people express belief in Jesus Christ but never really attain relationship? That Jesus never becomes real to them? That God never became real? And here's what I've concluded after years of wrestling with this. I believe people have forgotten along the way, or maybe they never really grasp in the first place, that they can approach the Father with confidence. It's as simple as verse 19. Approach Him, draw near. It's like my grandpa calling me in. Come on, draw near to Him with confidence. And when you come, you can expect something from God. I, I had a woman last night after the Saturday night service who said to me, you don't know my past. I can't approach God because of all the sin in my life, all the mistakes. Does that mean me, I can approach God that way? And she said back to me, "What could I expect when I come to Him? Let me take you back to Hebrews chapter four to close this. Hebrews four, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive judgment and go to hell. I'm just making sure you're paying attention. What does it say, church? Mercy and grace. That's your God. So even for these Hebrews who had the light The temptation was to walk away, and some of them may have, but they could always come back and say, I was wrong. I repent. I need your mercy. I need your grace. He says, in the time of need, God knows what your time of need is. So let's read that verse together, church, just to kind of embed it in your mind, and and then we'll close. Hebrews 4.16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's our God. It's a great point to close on. Let's pray together. Father, there's some here today who greatly needed to be reminded of this or know it for the first time, that you are the God of mercy and you are certainly the God of grace. You have overlooked what I deserve and have given me what I do not deserve. We celebrate a communion here, Father, in front of you today as a public witness of that. We are heirs with Christ. I pray for my brothers and sisters who have been here this weekend, those who are not here who are going to listen later, that you would remind each of us we can draw near to you and you will be real to us and we can have actual relationship with you. Help us, Father, not to hear the haunting voices of Satan telling us we're too covered in sin because that's totally contradictory to your your word. You've forgiven us and you see us as holy. Father, I, I pray that that courage would be there, that that boldness would be there this week to come before you with confidence. Show us what it means to have real relationship with you. I pray as a result of having been here that your blessing will rest upon us for having spent time studying your word and singing your praises. Send us out now with your blessing. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.